Welcome to Direct to Audio, a movie discussions podcast. My name is Spencer, and today Max is back on the pod. Max, hello. Hello, Spencer. How are you doing? I'm doing great. For all the listeners, Spencer and I, this isn't the first moment we have talked today. No. I've been on this for probably about 30 minutes before we started recording. It felt like when your parents get home, got home from work when you were a kid and you were just so excited to tell them so much stuff. That's how it felt. For 30 minutes before we started recording, we were just talking, 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 talking. Oh, yeah, and then this happened, then this happened. It's good to talk. To, we just talked about The Godfather out of nowhere for probably five minutes. And then we're like, you know, we should probably start recording. Well, okay, because, listener, <laughs> I was making some last-minute notes about this episode. And all of a sudden, before I told him, I was like, okay, we're going to start recording. He goes, oh, by the way, I watched The Godfather for the first time. <laughs> and I was like, you can't just throw that at me. Biz cash because I for listener I don't know if you know this as well I love The Godfather it's one of my favorite movies the first one I I just told Max is I think is the greatest movie of all time and I love the first two the third ones it's there but yeah. for him to just be like oh here's this was just such a quick throwaway I was like I can't let you just get away with that so we had to talk about that quite a bit but this is one that's been growing since we started where you're like I kind of want to talk about Beetlejuice or Pee Wee's Big Adventure or Edward Scissorhands or Mars Attacks. And then Batman, yeah. obviously. And so we've, I feel like, struck lightning in a bottle by creating, or not creating, but at least like coming up with the episode idea for the podcast where we discussed Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler's careers in kind of like a bottleneck where it was just a very yeah. small time capsule. And then from there, we both were like, wow, this kind of unlocks a lot for us mm-hmm. because we can ramble, as yeah. you can't already tell. <laughs> yeah. But so we decided, and I think you kind of came up with this framework of this, that we would discuss Tim Burton, but a very specific period of Tim Burton. Yep. Really, in my personal opinion, the only period of his career that matters in terms of him being like a legend. Uh, Spoiler alert, listeners, we're going to do 1985 through 1999, because I personally think that's one of the best runs a director's ever had. I agree. And... Let's say it didn't exist and he started making movies in 2001 with Planet of the Apes. And from there, it was his career. If that was it, he wouldn't be regarded as a legend because after that point, he kind of sold out. He was doing things in his sleep. But his career from 1985 through 1999 is full of so much passion. Like he takes so many chances with big movies. They're weird. They're scary. As I was saying to Spencer... Um, some of these movies definitely played a part in me having to sleep like with the lights on when I was a kid <laughs> because they scared the shit out of me because they're just some of them are so off-putting but in the most charming way. Yeah, and I feel like so, that's one of his many auteur styles. And I do want to bring up we're going to hear that phrase a lot. And for the listener yeah. who doesn't really know what that is, we talked about auteurs when we had the episode about Wes Anderson. Yes. And the best way to describe an auteur is and a lot of people again don't really think this theory exists um some people deny it but it's the idea that when you watch a film uh you can recognize who is making it because of the stylistic choices on screen so the ones that i think of the most are you kind of know what a scorsese film looks like you know what a quentin tarantino movie looks like you know what a wes anderson movie looks like and when i always say this i think one of the biggest ones you can think of is tim burton his choices on film, both in the framework of the art design uh, and just everything kind of encapsulated together, it really feels unique. And I don't know if anybody would be able to mimic the style that he created. 
I agree. People have tried. You, you can tell in the early 90s, because Batman was such a huge hit because of his look, you can tell that some movies try to cash in on that, like The Addams Family. I, I love those two Addams Family movies from the early 90s, but you can tell they're, the look is trying to be like a Tim Burton movie. Can I so, say a fun piece of note there? Yes. Ironically enough, he was supposed to direct the Adams Family movie, so there you go. Yep. You, you can tell that his influence was felt, and like Nightmare Before Christmas. I know that's technically not his direct, he didn't direct that movie, but he played a huge part in how it looks, and even that started influencing like animation. So this period of his career is, it's like, the movies are like banger after banger, they're all awesome but they're also very influential on how big movies were looking at the time. This is something that I'm so happy that you picked this topic because I learned so much more about Tim Burton doing this, and I'm excited to tell the listeners about it uh, just because yeah. he's so unique. And I, I, want to, I want to touch up on something you just said because you said if okay. his career you know, started in uh, 2001 just with Planet of the Apes and you didn't have anything before, um, you know, he wouldn't be as you know, well-regarded as he is now. And I agree, I disagree, because he did have uh, Sweeney Todd, he had Corpse Bride, uh, and he had Big Fish, which I think is a really underrated movie. But you're, Big Fish fucking rules. Big Fish <laughs> rules, dude. Um, but Love that movie. he also has a couple movies where you can just tell he, I feel like Planet of the Apes is the one where he kind of sold out a little bit. Um, yep. And you don't, it doesn't even feel like his movie. But then you can see, like, he, do, he did kind of, again, do something a little bit different with like trying the chocolate factory and then Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. And, uh, he did a couple like just meandering middle films that you can just tell he probably might've just made because it's like, Oh, they're kind of fun and they're paycheck and whatever. Or he might've been inspired by them, but they didn't have the same appeal as his earlier works, which yeah. isn't a bad thing. I mean, that kind of happens naturally as time goes on, but he did have a couple movies in there where it's just like, like, like Sweeney Todd, in my opinion is one of his best. Cause it's, it's another one of those ones where you can tell he literally just took a leap of faith. Um, yep. And I think in a great way. He kind of feels like when a musical artist, and I'm going to use the Red Hat Chili Peppers as an example, a musical artist who starts with a very, very unique sound. But then as their career goes on, their albums start to kind of sound the same to the point where they're doing a very commercialized version of that sound. Like his movies from 85 through 99 are very him. But then once the 2000s rolled around, Planet of the Apes doesn't feel like a Tim Burton movie. Let's just throw that out there. So I'm going to move on, skipping Big Fish, which is awesome, to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I feel like that movie has Tim Burton qualities to it, but it's very watered down. It was basically just Warner Brothers saying, Tim Burton, Willy Wonka, that's a perfect match. Do it. And he's like, I don't really want to, but whatever. It's very CGI, which I feel isn't Tim Burton. He's a practical effect kind of guy. He's not CGI. So I guess the point I'm trying to get to is once he discovered CGI, he just started making movies that felt like he was doing an impression of his style, just like an artist when they get to that point in their music career where they're like, this is what they want. I'm just going to do it. Well, one of the things I love about Tim Burton is that when he used any sort of practical effects, he had specifically said he wanted them to look bad. And to yeah. look below budget because those are the films that he really wanted to emulate. He wanted to emulate those horror movies from the and the science fiction movies from the fifties and sixties. He wanted to replicate the Hammer horror films. And I mean, obviously, if you look at one of the movies he directed in this period, where he's talking about Ed Wood, 
He yeah. wanted to replicate those really bad science fiction pieces. One of the quotes that he has that I really appreciate for this time frame, uh, kind of talking about what we just mentioned, is that he said, you always have to feel like it's going to be the greatest, even if it's a, you know, a piece of crap. Like, <laughs> so, like, he knows that some of the stuff just looks bad, but the way you sell it, and that's the point of the filmmaking process and the artistry of it, is that he's like, I'm making it so I know it's great. Like, it's that kind of, like, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like, if, I know, if I'm making it where I think it's crap, it's going to end up crap. But if I yeah. sit there and I make it, interesting exciting i think to myself this is gonna be amazing that's gonna replicate itself on the screen and i think that's a really important thing to look at we mentioned briefly uh about his auteur theory and kind of his stylistic choices and i think if we can kind of do like a ping pong effect of like certain things that make a tim burton movie a tim burton movie okay one of the biggest ones you just mentioned is that practical effect gothic imagery uh and those kind of strange stylistic art pieces that you can tell are fake I, the one i think of the most is like if you think of beetlejuice and the sandworms and this the overall set of uh, the underworld and how it just looks kind of cartoony but it's meant to be like those kind of stylistic choices is something that makes a tim burton movie very tim burton i agree i think that like pale faced oddballs mm-hmm. whether it's beetlejuice um Wee, Edward Scissorhands, the Penguin, and then even going into the part of their career that I don't like, uh, Willy Wonka, Mad Hatter, that it's just all these like kind of pale faced dudes who are just a little off. <laughs> yeah, I think also going off of that, he usually has his you know gang of people that he frequently works with, like uh, you mentioned Johnny Depp, you have Paul Rubens, Michael Keaton, Helena Bonham Carter. And then one of the biggest pieces of a Tim Burton movie, one of the greatest film composers of all time that literally started oh, with God. Tim Burton, yes. Danny Elfman. He's very, just like Tim Burton, he's very much his own style. Like, I don't think anybody can replicate the scores that he creates. Yep. It's his sound. And much like John Williams and Steven Spielberg, um, I think Danny Elfman, he knows exactly what Tim's vision is. Like the way that Tim's visuals meet up with Danny Elfman's music is it's brilliant. <laughs> what I love is that they literally both started filmmaking together. Yep. And we're going to get into that in a bit, but I, I love that They both started together. And besides three films, uh, they fought and had a break between Ed Wood, um, yep. Sweeney Todd, because that's a musical and that was Steven Sondheim. And then for some reason, I don't know why, but miss, uh, Peregrine, per, whatever, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar <laughs> Children, movie that I've never seen, yeah, and I don't feel like I have any interest in seeing yeah. uh, a movie that I can't even pronounce, apparently. <laughs> Peregrine's, there you go, I found Petty, it. Peter, Petty, uh, Peter, Peter. Uh, my, my favorite, uh, I'll do my favorite off, or office space course, or one of them, it's uh, Peri, Peri, uh, not, gonna, <laughs> not gonna work here anymore. <laughs> there yes. you go. I, I was saying this to you before we started, it's disturbing very very disturbing imagery whether it's props like uh set design or just the way a character looks very very disturbing but also charming in its own way like you can't take your eyes off of it and i think brie um i guess i'll say to the new listeners my wife even though at this point i mention her so much every episode she's also been on the pod precisely (laughs) twice brie um she described it once perfectly where she's like, uh, I am very disturbed, but I don't want to stop watching. <laughs> and I feel like 
that is a Tim Burton movie, and we're going to get into that much more with each movie, because as I said earlier, there are some movies on here, one in particular, that scared the fucking shit out of me when I was a kid. It's funny to think that he's slowly become one of my favorite directors because some of those movies, I couldn't even see the movie cover without being scared. That's how much, like, I feel like he was really good at that, kind of making this disturbing, scary movie that could appeal to both parents and children. (laughs) I was going to say, that's why I prefer when he did practical effects, when he did makeup, because as a kid, you know it's not real, but the fact that they put the time into, like, create the set or do the makeup it still felt like at night it could come into your bedroom (laughs) you know i will repeat the saying i say all the time where i say practical effects are way better than cg effects and uh if you need any more proof we literally talked about it now watch those (laughs) earlier movies and then watch the cg uh weirdness in the mid-2000s and just i mean you can clearly see the difference so we'll kind of jump into it right now uh what's funny is that he actually started off as an animator. He uh, used to do, as a teenager, uh, little stop motion animation pieces with his 8mm camera. And he, uh, something he says he does now is he always carries around a small notebook and a small watercolor kit. So he will just casually paint stuff and draw stuff. Um, and then attended the California Institute of the Arts to study character animation. Heavily inspired by Dr. Susan Roald Dahl, which you can kind of see also when we talk about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He is a huge fan, and we've mentioned this in the past, of those classic uh, 50s, 60s uh, horror movies and science fiction movies. So he's a big fan of like Mario Bava, which we've mentioned in the past on the slasher episode. Mario Bava is one of the biggest giallo film directors. So those Italian slasher films, Roger Corman, Barbara Steele, and then Vincent Price, his almost idol. He... Yeah. adores Vincent Price, which I think is so mm-hmm. cool. We'll talk about him way later down the line. But for those of you who don't know, he created a small character uh, that was titled Stalk the Celery Monster. And if you've never heard of that, that's okay because one company heard of it and uh, started his career. Max, do you know where he started out? Uh, Disney, right? Yes, he was hired by Walt Disney Productions Animation Division. He worked on uh, The Black Cauldron, Tron, and Fox and the Hound. Wow. I didn't know about Fox and the Hound, but the other two make sense. Yeah, well, to be fair, his concept art never made it into the movies, which I think is so funny. But what's cool is that during this time, he uh, worked with Vincent Price and created a short film called Vincent. It was literally about him. It was about a young boy who fantasized that he was Vincent Price. (laughs) And uh, like a Tim Burton idea. Yes, but his most Tim Burton idea comes in 1984 when he creates the live action short film Frankenweenie. I think most people understand that this was kind of where he got his jumping off point. Disney then fired him because they were like, hey, you're spending our money on something that children will not want to see because it's too scary. And then hilariously enough, in 2012, Disney released Frankenweenie. It's so backwards how that happened. The ultimate, like, not even middle finger, but like, uh, oh, you come crawling back to me. Uh, Even though Disney's obviously amazing, but it's so funny to be like, they fired him. He was like, okay, fine. And then, like, literally almost 30 years later, they're like, that dog. That's pretty cool, right? (laughs) Yeah. So so now that you're, like, a bankable director that makes millions for studios, would you like to remake that thing that we hated almost 30 years ago? (laughs) Yeah. I love it. And I feel so good. It's so much vindication. But 
to jump into our first movie. One person saw Frankenweenie and chose him specifically to direct a film for him and, pun intended, create a big adventure for both of them. Paul Rubin sees Frankenweenie and decides that he wants Tim Burton to create the film, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Woo! That's a great introduction. Hell yeah. Fantastic film. Thank you. I will say right now, I know this movie is very divisive. Yeah. I, and I think you do as well, fucking love Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It's such a confidence uh, debut for a director. All of his ingredients are there from the get-go, and none of it feels forced. It feels like he'd almost been dreaming up this movie for 10 years prior. It is such a beautiful pairing because Paul Rubens is a great comedic actor and just a great comedy presence. And this was an improv sketch. They did the Groundlings. It had its TV show. And it's very, it's a very much a niche market. And it, when you have something that's like this, where again, he's, he's the goofy, lovable underdog. And to attach yourself to a director who literally feels the same way. Mm-hmm. And they're both trying to just like prove a point to be like, hey, this can be a thing. It's such a wonderful connection. And it was literally the perfect timing. Tim was looking for something to direct. Rubens was looking for someone to direct. And then they found each other. This movie and a few other movies from this era are really funny. Like genuinely funny. And that's something that I feel like has been missing from from his movies since you know planet of the apes is he used to be a very skilled comedy director at the same time as being like this oddball guy who made these weird movies like Wee's big adventure is hilarious it's like the comedy is perfectly timed that comedic acting is perfectly timed doesn't feel wooden or anything that's that's one of my favorite things about this movie is just how funny it is it feels genuine it doesn't feel like it has to work to get you to laugh or to smile. And that's the thing I love about this is that it's also just it has. And I think this is something that Tim Burton movies definitely have is it has this heart behind it and this warmth. And at the end of the day, this almost acceptance. I think this was the perfect debut. Yeah, I agree. And it establishes this tone that is present in many of his great movies. And clearly Tim connects to this, these type of people because that's who he was growing up. But anywho, it's this oddball outcast character in the real world, but at the same time, even the real world's a little off too. They're a fish out of water, but everyone in their own way in, in these movies is just as weird. Like the people he meets along the adventure are strange as fuck. I mean, obviously the elephant in the room, Large Marge, but... Even that guy that he picks up who's on the run, like the story that he tells about the reason he was in jail is because he pulled a tag off a mattress. Like, that's so weird. But at the same time, Pee-wee's supposed to be weirder. So that's that's what I love about these movies, especially, you know, Pee-wee and Beetlejuice, whatever, is like these oddball characters in an odd world. <laughs> and I think it's also his commentary about a lot of things where it's like, look, everyone says like, oh, you're strange. And I think it's him just being like, no, look at the world. The world is also strange. It's it's almost like this idea of like, who sets the normal? Yeah. But I yeah. mentioned before this, I had something I learned literally right now. And I love this movie. I've seen this movie a lot. 
Do you know who helped write this movie? Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman. One of the Nuts. greatest comedic minds that has gone way too soon. For those of you who might be like, I've recognized that name. Watch Saturday Night Live in the 90s. One of my favorite characters in The Simpsons, Troy McClure. He is oh, a yeah. constant comedic presence. And I did not know that he helped write this. But what I love is that they literally read Sid Field's book, Screenplay, which I have read in film mm-hmm. class. And what's so funny is that they literally wrote like it to a T. Uh, Paul Rubin said, it's a 90-minute film. It's a 90-page script. On page 30, yeah. I lose my bike. On page 60, I find it. It's literally exactly what they said <laughs> to do in the book. It's so funny that, I mean, that's how, it, I mentioned this in the Harry Potter episode when I was ranting about um, Deathly Hallows Part 1, is that there's three arc structures in film. And that's where you have, like, in, in your perfect screenplay, it's 90 minutes, on, and 30 minutes in, you have the part one ends. 60 minutes ends, that's the end of part two. And it's hilarious that they were like, all right, how do we do this? And they literally were just like, well, here's the set and just write the things in there. <laughs> and they also say that sh- there should be a MacGuffin, which is, you know, something that they're looking for. Uh, yep. And the item of the film that's necessary for the plot to move on. And he goes, oh, my bicycle. <laughs> because <laughs> when they were making the script, Paul Rubin saw that Warner Brothers had bikes to ride around on the back lot. He's like, I want my own. <laughs> That's literally That's awesome. how this stupid movie came to be. I mean, stupid in the most I, loving and caring way. I had no idea. And it's funny because it's a three-act structure based on the hero being a literal man-child. Yeah. So it it almost – and it's it's got a lot of cynical – comedy like cartoonish comedy yeah like that guy that i was talking about earlier i forgot his name but when they drive off the cliff and just the way they're falling and screaming it feels like a looney tunes cartoon so it almost feels like it's spoofing the typical three-act hero journey like he said in that quote we're gonna all pretend like this is great yep and when everybody in the scene including the background characters when they all understand what they're supposed to be doing and yeah. that they're supposed to be over the top and so ridiculous, it makes it feel so much better. What upsets me about this movie um, is that, well, I, here's what I'll say. Again, I like I mentioned earlier, it's divisive. I think a lot of people can be annoyed by the Pee Wee character, and that's understandable. He is yeah. meant to be a very obnoxious character. I love him and adore him. I Again, I see him in the vein of those... Uh, misfit kid characters that we've talked about but i can see where some people get annoyed by it i think he grows on you in my opinion yeah like at the beginning he's very annoying but he becomes more and more lovable with like each passing minute you're like okay this guy's not that bad. he's a love underdog eventually he's just a funny movie character that you you laugh with you know yeah budget of seven million made almost 41 million dollars so it's a success and that's what's crazy is that a small budget he makes it work and we mentioned large marge okay one of the i, I if we're, if you're ranking and i think we have to do this episode down the line uh unintentionally scary film moments yeah. that like haunted us um i think large marge's facial transformation that made out of claymation yeah is one of the scariest moments uh that gets me to this day because it's very unsettling yeah. Um, when I, I, I love Reddit 
like most people. Yes. But um, when I'm on the movie page and I I see this post a lot where it's like, what's this, like what you just said, basically, what's a scary movie scene in a movie that's not supposed to be scary? I always go to that page and I scroll to find A, Large Marge, and B, the the boat scene in Willy Wonka. (laughs) I literally brought that up at work the other day where there's no earthly way of knowing. Those are like... It, those are two scenes in kids' movies that are traumatizing. Yeah. And But what's funny, one of the times I'm going to mention how some of these movies scared the shit out of me when I was a kid, Pee-wee's Big Adventure had a moment that did. And it wasn't Large Marge, surprisingly. It was the, the clown. The clown. Yes. When they're, like, marching the bike down the hallway, that scared the shit out of me when I was little. And I honestly, I saw this once when I was a kid, and I didn't watch it again until I was a teenager and because of that scene but what i wanted to mention with large marge as well is that the the claymation was created by the kyoto brothers who if you're a horror fan like myself created (laughs) one of my favorite horror movies of all time and one that i don't know if max you we talked about this in the 80s episode but they created the film killer clowns from outer space Oh, that makes perfect sense. And they've worked on things like uh, Critters, Ernest Scared Stupid, Team America World Police. They've worked on a couple of different yeah. pieces. But, and yeah. they, I, their style is fantastic. I just want to say that right now. I love the way they uh, design creatures and things. I can see it now. Yeah. Like, just the connection between the two movies. We mentioned earlier that he has been working with Danny Elfman since the beginning. And... Danny Elfman was in a little-known band called Oingo Boingo. Oingo Boingo. And I love worst band name in the history of band names. (laughs) He asked the songwriter for them to uh, provide music for his film. And Danny Elfman was obviously like, I don't know, because he's never worked on that and never done film uh, scores. Uh, And since then, like I said, has worked with him pretty much the entire time, except for those three films. And is arguably one of the greatest film composers of all time. And it's crazy to think, like you said, this was his first movie. And it's the music is it's not as competent as some of his later works, but still it comes out running right from the opening credits. It's very impressive how easily he uh, stepped into the film score game. I think there's one film and we're going to do another transition right here that you can really see his creative stylistic choices come out and that is in 1988 when tim burton created a little known film called beetlejuice Oof, i love beetlejuice a beetlejuice i mean there are so many thoughts that i have uh it is amazing uh but kind of going what you just said this one feels like both tim burton and danny elfman finally felt comfortable in their own skin creatively that when i think of a tim burton movie with the color choices on screen and the gothic imagery paired with this fantasy world and again this very unique take on society but he makes it his own and i think of the opening score with the that song has honestly been in my top spotify wrapped whatever for the past five years just because it's it's honestly one of my favorite songs. <laughs> that opening credits theme, it's brilliant. It never lets up, too. Like you said, they're so confident right from the get-go, from the first frame of this movie, and it's their second fucking movie together. That's insane. What's crazy, too, and we just mentioned this, every person 
in that set has to buy in to what he's selling. If you put anyone else in that role who doesn't commit to Beetlejuice the way that Michael Keaton commits to transforming into Beetlejuice and having Winona Ryder play his, again, if you're talking about the social outcast, it's her, one of the most iconic portrayals of that. She understands it as a young actress. Then to have almost like the straight men to this goofy world of Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis. Yep. Like they're the most normal people in the entire movie. <laughs> absolutely. And they're and we're literally watching them be dead. Yeah. Which is insane. Is that again, the most normal person in this film is a literal ghost. But what I love is that do you know how many routes this film took to get its script actually wrote? I don't. It went from being Beetlejuice being a winged demon who takes the form of a short Middle Eastern man who wants to kill the Dietzes. There was another Dietz child. It was a smaller kid who would get murdered by Beetlejuice. Uh, then there was ones where the exorcism ritual is what kills Beetlejuice. It went all over the place. And uh, Wilson has said that in McDowell's first forms of the script, they sent it in on a Friday and they got called into the studio on a Monday. They're like, oh, they love this script. And they were told, what are you doing with your career? (laughs) (laughs) And they were literally basically saying, like, it's a piece of shit. Uh, And then after that, they sold it to the Geffen Company instead. And they changed the entire script. But yeah, like the script went all over the place. So I don't know how they captured lightning in a bottle like this because it could have gone wrong in so many different ways. Yeah. I don't think a movie like this could ever be made again because of how weird it is and because they got so lucky with each choice they made. Like, had Tim Burton not directed it, had he not cast Michael Keaton, had Danny Alfin not been there, had, and I want to give the real name, production design, whoever did the production design, I was hoping it was going to be on this page, but whoever did it, they didn't have all these people there to create the unique set, the unique performances, the unique music, it wouldn't have worked. One person, one person dropped out, it wouldn't have worked the same. It's just, like you said, this movie is lightning in a bottle. More so than Pee Wee, in my opinion. So, production designer for uh, Beetlejuice was Bo Welch. Bo Welch, that makes sense. Okay, that's one of Tim Burton's boos. He had to convince a lot of people to sign on to the script because no one really knew what to think of it. So, it's so crazy that it worked. All the parts about the stop motion the animation the makeup the puppetry the blue screen he wanted them to all look like the b movies he watched and said i wanted to make them look cheap and purposely fake looking this was another one that scared me when i was a kid the exorcism scene what scared me when i was a kid was when they come back to life uh adam what's it adam and barbara when they come back to life and they start like decaying oh god yeah that scared me so much when I was a kid. So I didn't like this movie. And I rewatched it again when I was probably 12 and I finally got it. But it's one like E.T. and Ghostbusters that I didn't fully appreciate it for what it is until I was probably like 18, 20. Because it's so weird, much like Ghostbusters and E.T. And you hear about it all the time when you're a kid because it's a classic. And then you finally watch it and you're like, this is... T- a lot weirder than anything I'm used to. So it took me to be a little bit more mature to watch it and be like, that's the whole point. (laughs) It's supposed to be weird. 
and now it's one of my favorite movies. I went to uh, Universal Studios Hollywood Horror Nights this past year, um, yeah. and they had a Beetlejuice house. That's one of the reasons why we went, because I think everybody knows something about me is that I am now obviously obsessed with Beetlejuice. I dress up as him at Halloween. Majority of the years, you're walking through the entire house, and you're going through all the sets, and there was a part where you go through the uh, like dining room, and then all you see on the wall is the body of a snake. And it's going to the next room. And then it's like a cloth. And I'm like, oh, shit. And like, I could literally feel my body. Okay, but here's what's crazy to me. You go down this hall, like you turn and you go in this hallway. And to my left, it did not go off, which thank God, because I would have shit my pants. I looked and it was probably the size of a car. Is a gigantic Beetlejuice snake face in cloaked darkness, which still scared me. And... I don't know if it just wasn't working or it didn't go off when I went through. Yep, scared the shit out of me still. And I'm a grown man. And like being that close to it um, brought back those haunting memories that you just mentioned of uh, like being scared as a kid. That's awesome. But it's also really scary. Yeah. Um, and then uh, what's great is that the the whole uh, maze ended with a giant sandworm peering down on you, which was dope. But what I wanted to kind of also mention here with this movie is the character of beetlejuice um yeah i was Mike, gonna say we gotta address that <laughs> we do michael keaton i think he turned down the role quite a bit because he just he was like hey you know i appreciate it i just don't understand what's happening here i don't know what we're gonna be doing and he and burton kept approaching him i think he said like one point i just clicked and yeah it's one of the greatest casting choices um i think we've ever seen he's so so funny in it and like if you just know Michael Keaton as Batman or Birdman, like his more dramatic stuff, you would never think that he could be that funny. Like he is genuinely hilarious. The part where he says his qualifications, the way his voice slowly builds until he finally loses it is some great acting. One of my favorite things that he does is when he's down in the little, uh, the model and he starts walking towards the strip club. And just, I think I talked about it on the 80s episode, but just the way he's like, I'm feeling a little anxious. And he starts doing this little strut towards it. And then he does this hop. He starts hopping towards the door. I love that part. His little stylistic choices while he's acting is what makes, my favorite scene, and I found out that this was literally his idea, um, is when he is sitting on the top of that little cow dressed up as a cowboy trying to get them to call that was something that he created because he said that when he because he grew up in pittsburgh there was a guy who would try to sell cars and he's like i'll get you i'll do anything i'll I'll eat a bug i'll do this blah blah blah. and so he wanted to emulate that like used car salesman desperation in this really below average bio-access being like i'll do anything you want i'll do this we'll throw in one extra exorcism um and pretty much just improvised that entire speech and those lines um that's awesome he had some creative control on what he was able to do i watched an interview with him talking about how he wanted the hair to be sticking up he wanted to have like mold on his face like mm-hmm. that was all michael keaton's idea it really started this nice friendship between him and burton and when you watch interviews where keaton talks about burton his face lights up and he just starts talking about how there is nobody on this planet like him. There is a fun story. I'm not sure if you've uh, heard this, but apparently oh, 
Michael Keaton slipped in. They used a lot. They had a lot of f bomb stuff in the film, I believe, originally. Then it got edited down. But he slipped in the one line where he grabs his grin and goes, "Nice fucking model." Um, <laughs> apparently, the editor that was going through and checking everything to make sure that it was uh, good for the rating that it had uh, apparently fell asleep and uh, missed it. And so, because of that, one f bomb got through, uh, and that's how we get that line. That's delightful. Those 80s PG movies with one F-bomb. Yep. This big 16 candles, space balls. I love that. I didn't know that fact. That's delightful. Yeah. This movie won for best makeup, obviously, in the Academy Awards because it's great. And uh, I didn't mention this before with Pee-wee's Big Adventure, but this movie with the averages that we look at has an 80%. Pretty average right across the board. Uh, Pee-wee had a 72.83%, so still pretty good, but obviously... I think some fans are a little divisive on it. It was Metacritic's critic score that was really low on it. Everything else was in the mid-70s. Clearly one of the best leaps a director has done of all time where going to your second film and then creating your style right then and there, I think only kind of replicated by Quentin Tarantino with Pulp Fiction and Scorsese with... Tax Driver was one of his earlier films. I'm not sure if it was a second, but having something so quick establish uh, kind of your stylistic choices is so unprecedented and i love that he was able to make this movie because he captured lightning in a bottle with two films for pretty cheap the studios decided that why don't we give tim burton a little bit of extra cash to make his film so one year later in 1989 the studio decides uh, to give tim burton a little bit more of a budget they give him around 40 million dollars and he creates the modern superhero blockbuster by doing batman uh max and i have talked about batman 1989 at length so many times yeah so i adore this movie yes like anyone who listens to the podcast know that anyone who knows me knows that i love this movie so and we've talked about it a lot on here so we don't have to talk too much in depth about it but I do have one thought that I want to share about it. Is there anything you want to say before I jump in my spiel? I mean, I'm going to let you do your spiel because I've spilled a lot. But let okay. me just briefly say, when I said that this movie created the modern superhero blockbuster, I genuinely mean that. Because Superman yeah. in the 70s did, in a mm-hmm. sense, but I think the sequels afterwards and the studios didn't really take advantage of what that did. This movie right here, the way that it was marketed, the way that it was created, uh, the risks that it took with actors in the film is something that is so admirable. And then also what's crazy is that Tim Burton was able to keep his creative control and likeness and ideas in the film. Still Danny Elfman, Keaton in there. You have his typical cast of characters and the people that he likes to work with and his stylistic choices were created with something like this in a blockbuster it's so insane to me that he was he was given this ball and literally ran with it but go on he was only like 30 or 31 when he made yeah it. like that's how old i am i could not imagine me making a massive movie like this right now Mm-mm. it's it's very it's admirable it's awesome i i realized this since we've recorded our batman episode which was the last time we talked about this movie but 
as much as I love this movie and as much as it does feel like a Tim Burton movie, because like you said, he got to bring his usual cast of characters out of the movies that we're covering in this episode. It feels in some ways the least like a Tim Burton movie because he was a director for hire initially. He was handed this franchise and he was starting it. He was young. He was a little in over his head. So some of it you can tell was very studio enforced. He doesn't let his freak flag fly as much as he does in other movies that we're going to talk about in Batman. It feels like a Tim Burton movie, but it also feels like it's trying to appeal to many different people, which is fine with me because if this is how a director does that for big movies, then sign me up. I wish Marvel would hand their movies to these directors that they hand the movies to and let the directors put their own stamp on it because they all feel very same. Whereas Batman feels like a studio movie, but it also has that Tim Burton influence in there somewhere. But that's my rant. <laughs> no, but I, what I really appreciate that I've said this in the past in regards to a lot of just blockbuster superhero films, and this is what Warner Brothers has failed to do now with the modern DC universe. You have to be able to trust the person you put behind the camera. Yeah. And what I absolutely adore about this movie is that's why you said and I said, Burton put his trust in the studio, and the studio put their trust in Burton. And you can see down the line where that splits, and that's why he doesn't direct the third one. Yeah. But what's so insane to me is that they saw this guy making small, not small, but smaller budgeted films and decided to risk an entire franchise. Because, again, I, I cannot stress enough how Batman was dead in the water. Yep. And so to give him, be like, hey, here's your creative control. Good luck. Is, is Both for DC and Warner Brothers is insane. This movie made over $400 million. That's This is one I've talked about at great lengths. I wish I was there. That I do too. For this, the Bat Craze. You and I would have frequented the arcade down the street, and then we would have gone to see Batman in the theater probably 15 times. Yep. It was, at the time, the fifth highest grossing film in history. 78% average the way we look at things. Just an overwhelming success. One thing I want to mention that I love this little note. They got Prince to do the soundtrack, man. Can we yeah. just talk about how it's... Okay, <laughs> hilariously enough, my, you talk about Spotify Wrapped. My number one song for Spotify Wrapped 2021 was Trust by Prince from nice. the Batman soundtrack. Because for I had to watch it for the best superhero bracket and the Batman episode. Every time I watch that movie or think about Batman, I'm like, God, that song's a banger. Let's just put a random ass soundtrack paired with danny elfman's score they don't fit whatsoever together but it just works part of it though that makes it feels like it was just an event movie yeah i think tim burton he feels that way about this movie he feels like it was more an event than a movie but who cares like this is blockbuster filmmaking at its finest like this is how you advertise a blockbuster this is how you get people interested and this is how you deliver. So what's funny, though, is that uh, Burton did not like that idea of having Prince. He said that his movies are yeah. not commercial like Top Gun. He did not want that. Um, and Elfman had a little bit of uh, issue with the film editing and mixing because Prince wrote some songs. There was a little bit of a kind of clashing there thematically. But again, it works. 
The script went through a bunch of different uh, aspects. It was filmed at Pinewood Studios in England. If you know Pinewood Studios, it's one of the most iconic film stages of all time. Um, film things like Alien, James Bond films. Um, so being able to do that, this was definitely big budget to a T. From there, what's really cool is that he still didn't sell out. Yeah, He kept his darkness in his films and... What's crazy is that he uses as a bargaining chip down the line. We'll talk about it in a film down the line to be able to kind of keep his creative stamp on things. I feel like that's like the perfect segue to the next movie yep. because this Edward Scissorhands, I'll just get it out of the way, is his most personal movie. This is the most Tim Burton movie ever. I agree with you in a sense. I think stylistically and, and if you're looking at auteur theory, I think it is Beetlejuice. Yeah. This is the most personal because this literally is like a uh, a reflection of Burton's childhood. Yeah. This is – and what I, I love the backstory about this film. You can feel like this is Tim Burton trying to like console his younger self. He yeah. makes his most iconic, oddball, strange character mm-hmm. and it feels lovable and relatable and yeah. heartfelt. And I, don't, and I mean that in a sense, too, that he did create because he also wrote the story. So this is not just him directing. This is the first time that Tim Burton steps behind the pen and the paper. It helps yep. write a film. So he's putting his experiences on screen. It was a drawing he drew which uh, when he was a child um, that reflected his feelings of him living in Burbank, California where he just felt like he was alone and he couldn't find friends and keep them. And he said in his quote, I get the feeling people just got the urge to want to leave me alone for some reason. I don't know exactly why. So this really felt like it was personal to him. And knowing that now in looking at this film, it truly changes how I see it. And I went from thinking this movie was okay to absolutely adoring this film because you just want to give Edward Scissorhand a hug. And when yeah. you do, you're giving Tim Burton a hug, which is really nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. They even look similar with their hair. Yep. Well, I'm just going to address this right from the get-go. Growing up, this was, hands down, no pun intended, the scariest <laughs> movie I had ever seen. Me, personally. I remember when I was five, I think. My stepmom at the time came home from Blockbuster with it, and I watched it with her, my dad, and my brothers. I sat at my dad's lap the entire movie and didn't take my eyes off the screen. I was just infatuated. Later that night, I remember going to bed, laying, looking at the ceiling like, I am traumatized. (laughs) I am scared to go to sleep right now. I just kept picturing him in my closet. And this childhood fear lasted for 10 years. No joke. I could not be near the movie case. If a clip came on the TV, I had to leave the room. I was so scared of it until one day I was 15. I saw it on the um, on-demand guide and I'm like, I'm just going to bite the bullet. And I watched it in its entirety. And I'm a 15 year old going, this is still kind of, I have that childhood fear feeling in my palms right now where I'm overcoming my fear. But at the same time, I was like, this movie is a masterpiece. And then from that day on, I remember I got it for Christmas that year and I just it it slowly became one of my favorite movies. So it's funny how it started as a traumatizing experience and led into being one of my favorite movies. 
it's funny watching it now because like you said it's such a sensitive character he's not meant to be scary at all but just the appearance of him when i was a kid no thanks what i love is that's the beauty of the character like you as a child literally fell for what the character was trying to showcase and i think that's gorgeous is that the whole point of the movie is that nobody accepts who edward is because they're just scared of his appearance and once you watch understand the film or understand this person you grow to Mm -hmm. love him i i truly love that you felt for that pitfall as a child because that's the best part about it and i know there's probably hundreds of people that think the same way and Mm -hmm. that's what tim was trying to do and And i think that's so wonderful that you had this natural reaction I think that's why it's become one of my favorite movies. Exactly. Because what he is trying to do works. The plot can be by the numbers. Um, we That's a Tim so, Burton staple. He literally yeah. he has said in the past that he wouldn't know a good script if it slapped him in the face. Yeah. He doesn't like, care. Um, I think Roger Ebert said in his review, it goes on autopilot in the third act and basically just has like an action finale. And it's funny because I somehow have watched this movie three times in the past couple months. I was telling <laughs> you before we recorded. I, I noticed we watched Ghost too within the past couple months on Netflix. Same year, 1990. And they have pretty much the same exact ending. The girl and the otherworldly person go up to a dark attic type place and then the bad guy comes and gets stabbed and dies so you can tell like during that time that type of finale was very hot okay the, what's the hilarious this is another example also batman <laughs> yep <laughs> literally exactly. batman that he directed plot wise it's very by the numbers but when you look at just the title of this movie it is called edward scissorhands what a stupid title for a movie but somehow it works. Like, just imagine if you and this movie was coming out and you just saw the poster in the lobby at a theater. You'd be like, what? Why would you ever name a movie that? Like, it's so unique in that sense. Well, my one gripe is that they're scissor fingers, not scissor hands. Yeah. Give I me agree. a break. It's, Zero Stars movie sucks. It's basically <laughs> Freddy Krueger. Like, yeah. if he had two Freddy Krueger hands. Also, perfect timing because you do have a character that you can reflect and think. If I think of someone with scissor fingers or knife fingers, I think of Freddy Krueger. It scares me as that feeling. Um, I love the scissor hands look. uh, Done by one of the greatest special effects artists of all time, Stan Winston, who literally did Aliens, The Thing, Jurassic Park. Uh, He's won Mm -hmm. multiple Academy Awards and would later design the next film. He did The Penguins Makeup. And, like, I just noticed on my third watch this season, but, like, the way he has Edward's eyes, it almost looks like his eyebrows that he where his eyebrows should be. He almost looks like he's always nervous, and yeah. I think that's what makes him so lovable. Because when I was playing with Birdie, my dog, I realized dogs make that same face, and I think that kind of tied into making the audience love Edward. Is he kind of just has the puppy dog look, you know? Yeah, in his uh, own creepy way. And let's just talk about it right now. Uh, played beautifully by Johnny Depp. Um, someone who at the time, um, he had done Twenty One Jump Street, he had done uh Nightmare on Elm Street, but he really hadn't taken that big step. Johnny Depp studied silent film actors and studied Charlie Chaplin films to understand how to create that facial expression and, and to create and emulate emotions because he barely speaks. Yeah, and I think it's wonderful that when people think of acting, 
the nonverbal aspect of acting is so important. And to have a character whose voice is literally just stripped away from them is yeah. insane that we can also look at him and go, wow, he's so lovable and caring because he doesn't do anything besides just emote. Yep. It's funny you talk about the uh, silent film thing. I didn't know that because it makes sense in the scene where he is putting on the suspenders and everything because it's just him in a bedroom putting on. I think of the uh, I think the uh, waterbed scene is the one I always think about that. Yep, it's just perfect comedy. But a, another staple of Tim Burton movies that people don't understand what he's writing and are confused. Um, Winona Ryder obviously was the first person attached to the script. And then Diane Weist. Um, she was the first person to sign on and Burton has said like she was the first actress to read the script, support it completely. And then because she has so much respect in the industry, other people jumped on, (laughs) which is so sad, but great that someone has to be like, oh yeah, I like this movie. And then they go, okay. She's literally the heart of the whole movie. Her and her husband, um, Alan Arkin gives such a funny performance. Like the definition of a clueless dad, just going with the flow. Yeah. Like, his wife brings home this weird guy, and he's just like, okay, whatever. And the whole movie, that's just his outlook. <laughs> yeah. Like, I love at the end when Anthony Michael Hall, horribly miscast. Horribly. That's yeah, that's a bad movie. casting. But when he, like, shoes Edward away, get the hell out of here, he's running away. The dad just comes over, and Winona Ryder's like, where's Edward? He's like, oh, he just ran off down the street. <laughs> <laughs> just completely oblivious to the fact that this guy's, like, trying to kill him, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Something that Tim does a lot in these next couple films, and he did this in Batman too, is that he yeah. loves to pay homage to the films that inspired him or the people that inspired him. Uh, so Batman, obviously, he wanted to emulate those graphic novels and those comics that he grew to love. But in this, he was influenced by the universal horror films like Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom of the Opera, Frankenstein, just those classic black and white horror movies um where the the villain might be a misunderstood misguided creature and you can definitely see that and he does this a lot in these next movies where he really just tried to pay homage to the people that inspired him and that's showcased the most by the creator of edward scissorhands himself vincent price in his last role ever we know how much tim burton loved and respected vincent price was literally creating a documentary about Vincent Price as Vincent Price passed away. So it's never been shown and is never finished. One of the... Just like Edward. Just like Edward, yeah. One of the... And that's what's kind of sad too is that like... So Vincent Price dies in this movie, doesn't finish Edward. And then, you know, the symmetry there starts working with Tim, creating this documentary series. And then he passes away and goes unfinished. Vincent Price, one of the all-time great horror movie and just actors in general someone who had given his whole career to a genre that i love and this i truly love vincent price and he's someone that i admire and respect um because he was never afraid to work with roger corman and those b movie films and the hammer films and just really try to show an appreciation to a, a to a grimy film uh, style yeah. because especially in the 50s and 60s those films were looked down upon and yeah. they were really not respected and everybody got the money that they were deserved um, and i always love like when you see like christopher lee who comes in these things later and peter cushing and vincent price those are like kind of the three pillars of those films and they carry that entire genre 
And you can really truly see in these next films how Tim had so much reverence and respect for them. Mm-hmm. And this is one that you can see that he really had a pride to have Vincent Price in there. And uh, I love that he had a chance to be in this. And I'm sad that it's his last movie, but it, it's wonderful. Truly. I think it's a really good last movie for him. Yeah. It's because it, you can tell it's an homage to what he was. And just the character that he plays is supposed to just, he's Edward's father, basically, you know? So it's just like, its he's his mentor. He's the one who taught him everything that he knows. So I think it's a really good final role for him. It's funny, the scene where he dies, it, it really is heartbreaking. And I think that was another thing that scared me so much about this movie, taking away the fact that Edward looks the way that he does. But there are so many scenes that change tones abruptly. They go from happy to sad like that mm-hmm. and i think that really disturbed me when i was a kid like and i think as a kid just those weird tonal changes within just one scene kind of disturbed the shit out of me i will say 20 million dollar budget 86 million dollars back in the box office this is his highest uh, reviewed movie 84.83 percent uh this is uh danny elfman's favorite film he's ever done so I I love that everybody that was involved in it just really had a, a glowing love for this movie. I was going to say, I'm glad you brought up Danny Elfman because I was going to make that next point. I think his score is breathtaking in this movie. Yeah, it's wonderful. I think his next movie, Batman Returns, is still my favorite Danny Elfman score, but his score for Edward Scissorhands is so good. And like, you know, the ice dance theme, the... the like we all know that shit they use it in commercials still they use it in movie trailers but like he put his whole heart into this score and it shows it's like an opera i i want to briefly mention uh one last point here and then we're gonna move on to the next movie caroline thompson who helped write the screenplay literally wrote this as a love poem to burton said that he's the most articulate person she knows but couldn't put a single sentence together and as i said earlier he's always making commentary about society he this was going to be filmed in Burbank, uh, <laughs> hilariously again because it's just literally his childhood. But he just said it, it just was too different from when he was a childhood or from his childhood, and he he never really wanted to critique uh, suburban life. Um, he just always said it was just weird, and he never yeah. really understood it. And he wanted to just kind of replicate that and showcase how you know again that idea of normalcy isn't everyone's normal. And I love that he explored that theme. He said it was not a bad place. It's just a weird place. You get that vibe from the movie. Yeah. It's really, it's more the the people that live there that are the ones that kind of turn Edward away. It's not the the situation because you can tell he does have a love for his upbringing in suburbia. It's just the people looking down on outcasts that he has a bone to pick with. <laughs> yeah. But I, I love that this movie is just him being like, it's not a bad thing. And we all agree. Yeah. And that's what's wonderful. All right. So we have mentioned it quite a bit. And what's funny is that he has had so many successes up to this point that the studio was literally like, hey, you can make whatever movie you want. He chose to make Edward Scissorhands at the time. But his next film, he could have decided to go with two different uh, sequels. They wanted to possibly do Beauty's Coast Hawaiian. But instead, Tim Burton takes upon batman returns love this fucking movie i know you do so i'm just gonna give it to you just we and i will say we've also touched up upon this a lot 
yeah. uh, in the past, in the Bracket episode, in the Batman episode, in, the, in pretty much everything we've talked about, Batman Returns comes up somehow. But take it away, uh, your feelings about this movie. Well, I, we are, like you said, we've already talked about it, so I don't want to talk about it too long. But it definitely feels like Tim Burton saying, I don't want to make a Batman sequel. And Warner Brothers going, I don't give a fuck what you have to say. <laughs> so Burton's like, if I'm going to do this, give me control. So they did. And then they regret it because he goes full Tim Burton in this movie. As weird and depressing as this movie it is, it still has the final battle. It still has like the good versus evil bullshit. But the way that Tim Burton approaches it makes it almost more Tim Burton-y than Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice. Because this movie is fucking weird as shit. Like this, the set design, the makeup, just the overall, I think you said it has kind of like a grimy feel to it. Mm-hmm. It's just a very unclean movie. And like, it doesn't feel like a Batman movie at times. It just feels like Tim Burton being depressed and saying this is how i feel on the inside so everyone look at how strange i am what is so funny to me is that yeah he did not want to do this he has his hands all over this he replaced the screenwriter with someone he wanted he changed the motivations of the characters to be more again another kind of commentary uh these are people who our uh, corporate greed kind of comes back into play in this bureaucracy. Um, and it, it just feels, like you said, very Tim Burton-esque. You have the typical people coming into play. Danny Elfman's there. Michael Keaton's back. Paul Rubens is back. Michael goes back. We see Christopher Walken join in for the first time. It's a very strange take on this. What I think is funny, too, is that he always said, that the Batman characters some of the weird, wildest characters in comics, and yet they seem the most real. It's this idea that he was just trying to portray these characters in the way that he thought would best showcase them. He wanted to showcase um, the... There's always those super villains, and there's that regard of the Penguin and Catwoman, but then like the main bad guy in this is just a fucking bureaucrat. Yeah. I don't know if that really... Um, you know, was something that audiences liked. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny to me that he went that route, and the studio was like, you know what, to Tim Burton, and he was like, but you wanted me to do this, so it's just it's just so strange to me that the studio wanted him to do this, and then got mad that he did it the way he wanted. Yeah, that's that's Hollywood for you. Mm-hmm. The costumes he created, yeah, Bo Welch comes back to create the visual stylings. Oh yeah. Um, I love the cat suit look. Uh, i think yeah it's great uh penguin it literally changed how the penguin was portrayed in uh comics and future installments of uh art because danny devito's took that over his makeup is astounding stan winston baby the thing i appreciate the most is that the penguins the actual penguins they mixed cg robots people in suits and actual penguins love love that that scene where penguin dies spoiler alert for a movie that's fucking 30 years old but um when the penguins slowly like just push him into the water it's it's funeral march when you when you explain that scene to someone it's so dumb penguins push a man into a water but when you watch it 
mixed with Danny Elfman's score, that visual, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, it's like a funeral like, possession. It's, it's them literally yeah. carrying his coffin into the ground. It's it's oh, tragic. Because he's not that he's scene. not the villain. He is the victim. Yep. And it's it's much like Edward Scissorhands. Like, we're all put off by him, but it's just another misunderstood oddball. And that scene where the penguin dies is like, it's fucking, it's a bummer. Like, that is the quote-unquote villain, the one that they sold as the villain, you know, in advertising. That's him dying, and it's not over-the-top, like Joker falling from a building. It's just quiet and uh, sad. Danny Elfman's score at that part is beautiful. And I'm glad you said that, because I want to talk about Danny Elfman here. This is the movie that strained their relationship a little bit. Yeah. Um, So, Elfman uh, was excited to do this, and he worked literally 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, Burton told Elfman to be a little more artistic with it. Feel free to do things. But how there was so much pressure with Elfman to finish this, uh, it really strained them. And then also they had differences with Nightmare Before Christmas, which comes up technically next, but not really. Um, That strained them for the next movie that they actually, uh, that Burton actually directed. So Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a bummer that this has kind of gotten in the way. So, this was a kind of speed bump in the road for Burton in a lot of yeah. different ways. The studios kind of stopped backing him a little bit. Um, they turned away from him to do the next Batman movie. Uh, even though he was a producer, yeah. he didn't direct it. That strained uh, Michael Keaton's uh, relationship with the studio. He stopped doing the Batman character. We saw Joel Schumacher step in. That's a whole thing you learned about in the Batman episode that we did. It still made money, yeah. obviously, but not as much as it used to. Cost more to make, about almost seventy million dollars to make. It only made back two hundred and seventy in the box office. Um, reviews were okay. I just think that this was Burton literally showing his exhaustion on screen yeah. and how he didn't want to do this. He was more yeah. doing passion projects, and this kind of he put his passion into it, but not as much as he could have. Mm-hmm. But I, I think because he didn't want to do it but he had control at the same time yeah i think he still infused his passion into it because it's it feels like a tim burton art house film disguised as a superhero movie you can tell he was exhausted you can tell the restraint between him and danny elfman but they were still working their fingers to the bone so whatever pain they had they put on screen and because of that it's a very good movie like Danny Elfman's score, you can tell that he worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week, because his score for this movie blows every other Danny Elfman score out of the water. Edward Scissorhands comes close, but like it takes the themes from the original Batman and just amps them up. Because of all that, I don't care what the haters say. I think this is just a phenomenal movie. No, I, I love this take. I love this take on the character. I love this film. And again, you just have to understand where the mindset was at. You can't, yep. He went from his passion project to to yeah. a sequel to a big budget blockbuster that yeah. he just really thanks. I took me two takes on that one. Uh, <laughs> that he just really didn't want to do. I mean, he yeah. he got ten million dollars uh, more than his salary because it's like, hey, if you're going to do it. You better pay me, and they gave it to him. But yeah. overall, it just you can just see that this is the weird speed bump. Burton was so tied up with Batman Returns, he was unable to direct the animated film The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yes, everybody, 
he did not direct this film. There's your fun trivia fact. I think most people know that, but some people don't. He wrote it, he created the characters, and he was a producer. But it was not directed by him. It was directed by, let's find the name of the person. Henry 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 Selleck? Yes. Is that how you say the last name? Yes, Henry Selleck. Ironically enough, although they were strained, Danny Elfman did the singing voice of Jack Skellington. Uh, You also have Paul Rubens in there as well. Catherine O'Hara. You have the group of people that kind of always are around him. Also, kind of a fun little note, on Beetlejuice, when when he's at the house and he comes out as like the merry-go-round, if you look on the top of his head, there is a Jack Skellington. Ah. There you go. Fun little nugget there. We won't be talking about this movie, I mean, more than like a minute because he did not direct it. It is obviously very Tim Burton inspired um, because he created that story um, and the characters and helped write it. I am not a fan of this. Um, I will just say I think it is overdone and um, I can see how people like it, but it's not my cup of tea. I think you really feel similar. I agree. I don't like this movie really at all. <laughs> yeah. It's not I, my... I think the animation is very impressive, but it's just boring. It's a very, 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 very short movie that feels like it goes on way too long. And yeah. I think it just, I think maybe had Tim directed it, I'd like it more, but it just, I don't know. I get why people like it. It's not for me. But I think that's the perfect way to write it and say it is that you don't have to love it, but you can uh-huh. at least see why people enjoy it. And that's kind of how I feel about this. I just it's completely lost on me. Um, I might have just missed the boat on being a big fan of it. Plus, no offense, people. Uh, the, I went to school in like the late 2000s, early 2010s when oh everybody in their right gothy mind was wearing uh nightmare before christmas hot topic things I and agree. i did not like it so that kind yeah. of also strained it there too but anywho what we can talk about is two years after he created batman returns he was working on one of his most passion project films he directs a film called ed wood a yes, biography about director ed wood starring johnny depp the uh cult filmmaker who is most known for creating what people consider the worst film of all time plan nine from our space this is definitely a passion project for tim burton in a lot of ways just like edward scissorhand was ironically his two most passionate projects okay have the word ed in them um there are, there are so many reasons why this movie means a lot to uh, Tim Burton. He says it's his favorite movie he's ever directed. But because, one, Ed Wood, the director, was an outcast as a human being. He wanted to be a director. Um, he was a terrible director. He just wanted to make films. Um, he liked to dress women's clothing. It's one of the most iconic lines of the film. And, again, in the 50s, when you're kind of when you're doing something that's seen to be set from the norm, people look down on you. And that was something that really made Ed be a social outcast. Then Ed wanted to create films that he felt were passionate to him. And he wanted, he always thought that the films were good films. Even when people hated them, just like Tim Burton said earlier. And then in the film plan nine from outer space, they get Bella Lugosi to act in his final film. Bella Lugosi dies before Plan 9 is finished, and 
actually has to have parts of his scenes uh, filmed as his uh, as uh, Edward's dentist, just dressed up. <laughs> it's a sad story because Bella goes passed away, but Bella was so happy to be doing it uh, that it's a really kind of sweet, st- somber story. And if any of that kind of sounds familiar to you, it is literally what Tim Burton did with Vincent Price what four years ago three years ago like it is so sweet and it's an homage not only to bella lugosi not only to ed wood but also to his late friend vincent price um because uh tim burton saw him and vincent price reflected in the relationship between ed wood and bella lugosi and i just love that you can feel that on screen and you can feel it so much that martin landau won an oscar for best supporting actor for this portrayal it's it's a very good performance too this movie it's it's kind of a bummer because of all the tim burton movies i've watched in the past year this is one that i wanted to rewatch the most but i just never found the chance to i've only seen this movie once and that was almost 10 years ago and i remember loving it i thought it was phenomenal this and big fish are like the two movies where if there's like a naysayer who's like Tim Burton's not a good director, all he does is just do weird imagery and creepy stuff. This and Big Fish are the two movies where Tim Burton's like, well, fuck you, I got range. Aside from the fact that it's about oddballs making an odd movie, it's pretty straightforward and down to earth. Like, there's no cartoonish stuff that jump out at you. It's just, it's the story of a man with a dream. That's that's true, and I, I love that about it. What's still funny to me is that it is a biopic, but he has literally said that like he doesn't want it to be a realistic biopic because he's like, I can never get inside someone's head and in their spirit. So it's, you know, you kind of just make what you feel. I love how it showcases how films are made. That's what's funny, too, is that it, it's also like personal stories. It feels like from Tim Burton's life where it's like he's trying to be a director. He's trying to make his own thing. Maybe the studio doesn't want him to do it, but he's going to do it anyways. And that's really what it feels like he's saying throughout this movie i watched this during film school and i loved how it's kind of like that phrase like how the sausage is made that's how it felt where it's like all the things he had to go through to get this film created and everyone just shits on it but what i love is that you can see in ed's eyes he's like i made a movie this is everything um i love that feeling behind it and unlike the movie i compare it to it's like the disaster artist where it feels like everyone's laughing at um, Tanya Wiseau and also Tanya Wiseau just doesn't understand how to sometimes take those criticisms. I mean, Ed Wood has this sincerity behind him where it just felt like he was like, I just made a movie. And I'm happy about it. And uh, I, I love it. I recommend everybody watch this movie because I, I think you made a really good point that this is when you're thinking like, oh, Tim Burton just makes goofy, funky movies. This is like a genuine good movie. And then also stylistically to have it all be black and white is really intriguing and also hard to do and i like that he did that and i'm glad you made the disaster artist comparison because i was going to compare it to that movie um i am a sucker for movies about like a group of just outcasts uh banding together to make something great and this has that vibe disaster artist has that vibe and a very 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 underrated movie brigsby bear has that vibe have you ever heard of brigsby bear uh no it's uh, Kyle Mooney, but um, it's the same type of movie, just like this oddball and all of his friends making a movie together, and I'm just a sucker for that. I will say, I like the Disaster Artist movie a little bit more than you. I remember I saw it in theaters, and I thought it was really good, and then that Christmas, I got the book that it was based on, 
the book makes that movie look like a piece of shit. And we've talked about this before, I think. Um, the Disasterers book is very, very good. And it felt like James Franco read the cliff notes when he made his movie <laughs> because it just picks up little things from the book and packages it more into a Hollywood template. Whereas the book has very dark scenes in it of or like parts of like how they like the turmoil of making that shitty movie. And I think had that book been handed to a better director, it could have been a movie on par with Ed Wood. But here we are. And, but that's exactly my thoughts too. You've mirrored them uh, perfectly. Where it, yeah, it just feels like they didn't know how to encapsulate that and capture the the meaning behind the creating of the film and how the people felt. Whereas I feel like Tim Burton really wanted to make sure that he did that respectfully. Whereas Disaster Artists feel like they're making a parody and trying to get laughs. This yeah. feels like he's trying to just put soul into it. You know. Yeah. And I just I love Johnny's giddy performance too. Yeah, so happy in this movie. He is wonderful. Uh, one of my yeah. favorite Johnny Depp performances because he just leaves it all on screen. Um, I, what makes me sad is that this movie had a budget of eighteen million and made five point nine in the box office, so it was a bomb. And that sucks, honestly. When and, and but you see that a lot of times when people do this. But you would have thought that after garnering so much critical acclaim that this movie could have at least tried but again if you don't sell it as a comedy and it's like a biopic and then i don't know how that was playing in audiences in the 90s you're also up against films like forrest gump and uh pulp fiction uh shawshank redemption like you're you're up against a lot of heavy hitters so um and then again if you're making a very niche movie about a um a director who likes to wear women's clothing made the worst film of all time i don't know who that's really uh for uh, at yeah. that time period so um i can see where he was going and i really do appreciate it and um it, again it critically claimed 80.16 percent with the average i look at one of the highest rotten tomato scores he has uh 92 percent and again nominated for a lot of awards um rick baker was on this rick baker one of the most wow. iconic makeup artists of all time one of the best. uh it, he won an academy award which is great um so love that I just want to repeat what you said earlier. If you have not seen this movie, give it a chance. As odd as the characters are, it's, and this is a strange comparison, but like, it's kind of like when Guardians of the Galaxy was being uh, promoted before it came out. Everyone's like, what? A tree guy or talking raccoon, a green lady? Like, what is this? But then you saw the movie and it all made sense. And I think it's the same with Ed Wood. You might think that. It's strange and off-putting, but once the movie starts, you just realize, oh, this is just the story of a man with a dream. Again, he's just a lovable underdog that you want to see win in the end, and it's fun, it's heartbreaking at times, and the performances are excellent, and yeah, at the end of the day, he you know achieves his dream, and I, we've all been there. We want to achieve a dream no matter how outlandish it can be, but you said something. You compare this to Guardians of the Galaxy, a movie about creatures coming from space or being in space, and what a transition because his next movie <laughs> is Mars Attacks, a comic science fiction film literally based upon Topps trading cards of the same name. What, what I really appreciate is that he literally got kicked in the balls financially 
making a passion project about someone he admires and then goes, you know what? I'm going to do it again and I'm going to do it even bigger. This is one that is the exact opposite. It made money in the box office, cost $70 million to make a big budget, but it made back 101 so not crazy, but it still made some back. Critics and fans are divided on this. Yeah, this movie is bonkers. Absolutely. I, I could not believe how crazy it is, how many chances it takes. Like, the literally, the first scene in this movie, they realize that they're being attacked by aliens because a farmer's cattle, like all these cows, run out from the farm on fire. <laughs> I was sitting there watching it like, holy shit, that's dark. This is how he chose to open this movie. As I was watching it, I thought, this almost feels like Tim Burton's middle finger, too. Exactly. That's, that's what I was just going to say. This right. is him literally going, you don't like my style? Fuck you. I'm going yep. big, and I'm going ballsy. Yep. It's like him saying, well, you didn't like my take on Batman Returns? Fuck you. And it's him saying to the audience, oh, you didn't want to see Ed Wood? Fuck you, too. And he just like, and it's funny because it's the same year as Independence Day, which is such a golly gee willikers type take on the same story. You know, a bunch of big stars fighting um, aliens and saving the day. Whereas Mars Attacks is a bunch of big stars, not necessarily fighting aliens, but like being selfish and only looking out for themselves. Like this is a movie full of some of the best actors of all time playing just selfish assholes. And okay. that's what I love about it. I agree 100%. Here's what's hilarious to me. One, you mentioned uh, it came out the same year as Independence Day. The original concept was either they wanted to do Mars Attacks or Dinosaurs Attack. And then Burton said, uh, Jurassic Park just came out. I don't want to be too similar to that. So we changed to Mars Attacks, which then <laughs> ended up coming out the same year as Independence Day. He was like, I'm fucked either way. And then bring up Ed Wood. He he uses as a homage to Ed Wood because he wanted to make an alien invasion movie like Plan 9 from Our Space and all the science fiction movies like Invaders from Mars, It Came from Our Space, War of the Worlds. This was him paying homage to the movies he loved as a kid. And then you brought up the actors in this movie. We're just going to run down the list. Ready? You want a ping pong list or just want me to read it myself? Uh, let's, let's do a little ping pong. Okay, right off the bat, we have Jack Nicholson in two roles because Jack Nicholson uh, jokingly said he wanted to play all the roles. I love that fact that he made that joke and everything. But when I was watching it, Jack Nicholson kills it as the president. That's awesome. And he's good in that other role, which is kind of like a loudmouth southern man with a cowboy hat and everything. Yeah. But if I were to make one change to this movie... And it would make sense for the time and who Tim Burton worked with. I would have had Michael Keaton Michael in Keaton. that other role. Yep. Doing, like, hearkening back to his Beetlejuice days. Because he would have been so But specifically, him being the used car salesman Beetlejuice. Exactly. Bingo. Like, wouldn't that have been awesome? Yeah, I wish my... I honestly do wish Michael Keaton was in this. I think he was yep. too busy making Jackie Brown. So who's your next one? Ping it back to you. Um, Michael J. Fox. That's, that's one I always forget about until I'm watching it. Uh, another weird one. Uh, you have Pierce Brosnan, um, Jack Black. Yeah, randomly in his first, and he gets murdered immediately. Then you can ping pong it back to Natalie Portman. Yeah, what the fuck is she's the president's daughter, right? Yep, Martin Short. Uh, Danny DeVito, and Matt Benning is the first lady, right? Yep. Uh, oh, no, 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 no that's, she, that's Glenn Close. Glenn Close. Well, you took two. That's fine. I'll take two yeah. this time around. <laughs> How about you give me Tom Jones playing himself? 
And then Jim Brown also being in here. Boom, boom. Yes. And I was about to say that um, everyone is so selfish in this movie, except for that family. Yep. They're the most down to earth, like level headed people in the whole movie. And going off that Pam Greer. Yep. Exactly. I was going to say hilariously, Jackie Brown. Uh, (laughs) And then we've pretty much hit all of them. Uh, His wife, Lisa Marie at the time, she was in there. And then uh, Christina Applegate. And then classic voice actor Frank Welker, voice of the Martians. <laughs> and Sarah Jessica Parker. Oh, uh, this what movie's batshit insane. Um, yeah. It's not great, let me just say. It's a, it's, a, it's a bad movie, but it's one of those ones where it's like, it's a pulp movie. You just put it on and you can just be like, what the fuck? And just think about how many, like you said, risks. This is literally him going, all right. I'm going to get all my friends. I don't give a shit. And we're going to make a fucking ridiculous movie just for the sake of making it. And I, I love it because of that. It is bad, but in my mind, when it comes to Tim Burton just going off the wall crazy and not giving a shit what anyone thinks, I think it it's the perfect next movie after Beetlejuice for him. Like, Pee Wee, Beetlejuice, Mars Attacks. Those are his three craziest just funniest movies it fits right in with that yeah and also fits right in because danny elfman comes back they don't break up uh until they do um sweeney todd for the musician purposes i think it's so funny you mentioned this uh you know when cgi is done it's not great the cgi done by industrial light and magic not that great looking but he also did say again he wanted the effects to look cheap and purposely fake he wants the movie to look bad because it's paying homage to the shitty films he watched as a kid. I, I love it. For I, that. That's literally only for him. Because anybody else, you would have asked to make that movie look good. And he's like, no, make it kind of bad. <laughs> and knowing that's going to make the reviews worse. It's, but like, it's, it's a great movie to watch every couple of years because every time you do, you're like, you're like, this is more fucked up than the last time I watched it. <laughs> What I also really appreciate is that this movie's short. It's a little over 100 minutes. It's a very brief movie. We'll cover this on the podcast eventually, you and I, because there's so much happening. And uh, also, Sylvia Sidney was here in her final film role. And do you know who Sylvia Sidney was? I do not. Sylvia Sidney was the afterlife lawyer in Beetlejuice. That makes sense. I, I just went under Wikipedia. I like read yep. it as you said it. Okay. I just love that she was in here too. It's a yeah, blast. It's a blast. Uh, but to wrap this thing up, we then go to his final film of the 90s. He then creates one more homage to his favorite films when he was a child because he's already done all the sci-fi B movies. He's already paid homage to Vincent Price, but you have to pay homage to those Hammer Horror films. And what better way to do that then by creating an homage to Christopher Lee and the vampire kind of dra- drama roles in the past, and also bringing in Christopher Lee uh, to create Sleepy Hollow. Yep. I don't love this movie, but I like it. This was one of the first Tim Burton movies I remember seeing. Yeah, I feel like it was a lot of people's first Tim Burton movie, like in our age group at least. Yeah. For some reason. I don't know why. I remember it was a hit when I was like in fifth grade. My mom wouldn't let me watch it, but I just heard a lot of people at school, like on the playground, talking about it. And it really intrigued me. But by the time I saw it, there's good scenes in this movie. There's good acting, good set design, great cast, but it's 
kind of boring. It's definitely the least Tim Burton-y movie of the bunch we've talked about today. And I think that's very apropos because we're wrapping it up and going into the uh, era where we feel like it's the least Tim Burton. But it's not the outlandish, over-the-top, like kind of almost farcical, stylistic choices. It, it's trying to be serious. The only thing I can think of that is very goofy is you have Johnny Depp's over-the-top kind of portrayal and then the red, bright red color of blood. Oh, yeah. It stays with the physical sets, which I think is great. And what's funny is that Ian McDermott, who plays Dr. Lancaster in this and also is Emperor Palpatine in the Star Wars movies, was done, just finished Phantom Menace and came to this and was saying how much he loved the physical sets compared to the blue screen. So he's like, it really creates a world and he feels like it's the way that movies used to be done. So hilariously, again, Industrial Light Magic is helping Sleepy Hollow make this, who also works with Star Wars uh, and Ray Park who was the Headless Horseman, a.k.a. also Darth Maul. So it's, it's weird that there's so many parallels between those two. Yeah. Um, but you can still feel Tim Burton's choices behind it, where we're going to have large sets, we're going to have kind of that gothic imagery, and we're trying to make a Hammer horror film, where it is just, we're not making this funny. This is meant to be horror. It's similar to me with, like, Jackie Brown with Quentin Tarantino. It's like, this just doesn't feel like him. You kind of nailed on the head that, like, it's better than what came afterwards because you can still see his passion in there somewhere. Yeah. By opting to go with the sets, to go with the practical effects. And as much as it feels like a product more than a Tim Burton movie, like I'm just on the Wikipedia page right now, just the poster alone with this dumbass tagline, heads will roll. Yeah. That's so late 90s blockbuster. And just the way Johnny Depp looks on the poster, it just looks like they were trying to go for a blockbuster. And it makes sense. You know, after Batman and Edward Scissorhands, he really started just doing whatever he wanted. So it's really kind of him just saying, all right, I'll play the game again. You know, and it was the beginning of the end, in my opinion, for his big budget filmmaking. But at least you can see his heart still in it. Like that scene where... Ichabod goes to that creepy old lady's cabin mm-hmm. thing. I don't remember her name or anything, but that scene is terrifying. <laughs> when he pulls her hair back and it's it's a classic timber and jump scare with just this mm-hmm. crazy face jumping at you. That is such a Tim Burton scene that I wish it was in a better movie. <laughs> yeah, I will say the one thing I love about this movie is the fact that he packs this cast with horror veterans and just acting veterans. Johnny Depp, Christina Ricci's in here, Miranda Richardson, uh, and I wanted to say this right now. I did say his name incorrectly in the Harry Potter episode. Uh, Michael Gambon, a.k.a. Dumbledore, is in here. Uh, Casper Van Dien, I already mentioned Christopher Lee, Ian McDermott, Michael Goh is here. And then finally, let's wrap this puppy up. Christopher walking yep oh my god i love christopher walking in this movie he's so scary he is giving it his chaotic energy his like when he's on the horse he has like those wickedly weird teeth uh yeah fucking love it um <laughs> but what i really do appreciate and I, I know you're not gonna really connect with this part so i'm just gonna take over briefly um this really was him showcasing his love for the hammer horror films and the uh giallo films uh, particularly a movie that he wanted to remake but wasn't able to do, Black Sunday, 
uh, an excellent horror movie. If you've never seen it, directed by Mario Bava, as I've mentioned in the past, uh, it is an Italian film, um, but it's amazing. The Hammer horror films, for those who don't know, in the 30s and the 40s, you had the Universal Monsters, Frankenstein, Dracula, The Mummy, things like that. A company comes around called Hammer. They're a British film company, and they make a bunch of fantasy and horror films from the 50s to the 70s. And this is Frankenstein, Dracula, The Wolfman. They do it all, but they do it differently. And as I said earlier, you have Vincent Price in there. You have Peter Cushing. But most notably, you have Christopher Lee playing Dracula. It's a very unique take on horror films, but this is something that truly shaped who Tim Burton was. They also have Roger Corman films. He's doing the very strange, unique uh, stylistic choices in cinema. Um, He's making goofy horror films with Vincent Price. But that's where he's, as we've already seen, he's, he's tried to pay homage to a couple different types of screenwriters. This is, and again, besides I would say maybe Charlie and the Chocolate Factory being his homage to Roald Dahl, I feel like yeah. this is Tim Burton's final homage to the filmmakers who made him. Yep. This is the last time he says, hey, I love these films and I want to showcase that on screen. Mm-hmm. And for that, I think it's the perfect closer for this episode. Yeah. Because that's what this whole era of his career was. He was young and he was hungry and he just wanted to show the world not only his unique vision, but it was almost like he wanted to make everyone aware of stuff that they might not be aware of, you know? Yeah. It's like, hey, I love this stuff. Come look at it with me, you know? And you can really see him losing that passion literally starting with his next movie. And we're we're not going to go into the next movies. Um this, we'll wrap it up right here. We've talked for a while. This not mo- us. Yeah, not us, no. <laughs> this movie has a 77.16%. Uh, it falls right in the middle of his eight films. Uh, if you're wondering and you're listening to this, what the ranking would be, it goes eight is Mars Attack, seven is Pee-wee's Big Adventure, six Batman Returns, five Sleepy Hollow, four is Batman, three is Beetlejuice, number two is Edward, and number one is Edward Scissorhands. So, that makes sense. He sadly divorces his wife, uh, Lisa Marie, he jumps in the 2000s. He meets Helena Bonham Carter on Planet of the Apes. Not saying it's a good or bad thing. I mean, they're wonderful. They have a great connection ever since. But this is definitely a turning point for him. And a lot of people say that. And what's funny to me is that he just starts making, as we've talked about in the past, movies that kind of start to go in the middle of, is it showing his passion or is it just him kind of doing his thing? Or is he just found the studio's orders and... I think a lot of people, if you're fans of Burton, you can appreciate his later works, but you understand that the core of what makes Tim Burton, Tim Burton, is that run. And you said it earlier. I want to reiterate this, and then we're going to wrap this thing up. It is arguably one of the greatest runs in cinema history because it's a beautiful blend of critically acclaimed box office successes and then just auteur uh, film aspect and him getting his too. to have your cake and eating it too, literally on screen and besides ed wood they're all successes they all make money i mean sleepy hollow for what we just said made over 200 million dollars in the box office that's crazy and so it's just really interesting to be able to see a guy keep that for that long 15 years 
And if you're a fan, Tim Burton, you're listening, I hope we did this justice. Um, Max and I obviously love him as a director, as a creative mind. I love him to death. I want him to make another good movie. Not just I want him to make another Tim Burton movie. I want him and Johnny Depp to um, collaborate the way they used to. I think, and we mentioned Willy Wonka so much, but that was the downfall of those two. I know you like Sweeney Todd. I still haven't seen it, so I could change my opinion. But I feel like every other Johnny Depp, Tim Burton movie, they both just phone it in together and pull out of the same bag of tricks. But like Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood, and Sleepy Hollow, what great collaborations. And I just, I want another one. But I, I encourage you to see Sweeney Todd if you can. I agree with you, though. I think once Charlie and Chocolate Factory came out, it just kind of soured the taste in people's mouths. One last thing I really appreciate about Tim Burton is he is very loyal to the people that are loyal to him. So you see yeah. Danny Elfman. Danny DeVito just came back for Dumbo. Michael Keaton came back. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter is always going to be there. So is Giant Depp. There are people that understand that he is such a unique voice um and that they're always going to be there and i i love when directors can have those set people um and just be like hey no matter what i'm with you ride or die i I totally agree um this podcast has not only been a tim burton love fest but a danny elfman one as well oh yeah um but max i appreciate you being on here i'm glad we finally got to actually talk about tim burton in depth i feel like we did him justice i hope timothy burtonathy um is his name (laughs) But he shortened it for Hollywood. He did for yeah for Hollywood. Timothy <laughs> Burton. It was a very long name. Uh, but Max, thank you so much for being on here. I'm glad you're finally on your first episode of season four. It took you long enough. Took you a week. Um, yeah. Well, I appreciate you. We'll see you soon. Um, I think the next one for you, as we talked about, is going to be Spider Man. Dope. I can't wait. I have so much to say. But Max, thank you. Go have fun with your wife. I've taken you away from her all day. <laughs> it's only four o'clock as usual. Yeah. You guys know the drill. Be kind. And please rewind. Intro song from YouTube Audio Library by DJ Williams. Audio recordings by Clean Feed. Logo created by David Lucas. Purring by Storm.